my landlord just showed up with a bunch of tools. <laughs> Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. I started watching Squid Game this week. And from the title and from the fact that Walmart was starting to sell special merchandise connected to the film, I went into it assuming I was going to hate it. It was going to be dumb. The fact that it had sort of a reality TV kind of component to it. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like this. But I have to say, it really delivers and feels like it's following right in the footsteps of Parasite and Bong Joon-ho's other work in that genre of really interesting dystopian Korean satires about class warfare. Really excellent. I cannot agree with you more. My boyfriend plowed right through that. I was like, I'll just catch it whenever I can. And every time I was completely sucked in. All right. So I love the L word and it's a, a fantastic show. My sister turned it on, turned me on to it years ago. I'm a huge fan. And I just finished watching the L word generation Q, uh, the second season. They just finished up the second season and Oh my God, I wish they'd just come out with a third season already. That's all I'm going to say about it. If you are a fan, you got to watch it yourself. I'm not going to spoil anything because it's too easy to do that. I watched Final Destination 3 <laughs> because I had seen past Final Destination films and Final Destination 3 is one that's highly rated by the fans of the series. So I figured, okay, this is going to be the exact same thing all over again, but I'll try it just because it's, you know, when it comes to, sort, for example, the Friday the 13th films, I think three is like the best one. So I'm like, okay, I'll jump back into this. But it was, in fact, exactly what you expect. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I've, I've talked about how formulas can be great if you like the formula. Like ACDC, every song is exactly the same. I love that <laughs> formula. So I like every ACDC song. Ramones, same thing. You know, Final True. Destination movies, it's the same thing. You know, it's going to be this highly, slickly polished glamour lighting horror is what I've heard it referred to. And and everybody's going to die. You know? <laughs> There's no escaping death. Worth checking out if you like that kind of thing. But I think it's time to jump into Cowboy Bebop knocking on heaven's door. The title, of course, in Cowboy Bebop shows always refers to a song or at least a type of music. This is, of course, the famous song Knockin' on Heaven's Door by Bob Dylan, later repopularized by Guns N' Roses. You guys familiar with the song? Yes. Oh, all too familiar. I grew up on Bob Dylan. <laughs> I also, I looked up the lyrics because... There aren't very many from what I remember to the song, so I figure the ones that are there are important. And it's two short verses punctuated by long choruses of just knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. But the short verses are, Mama, take this badge from me. I can't use it anymore. It's getting dark, too dark to see. Feels like I'm knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking, knock, knock, knocking. And then the next verse, Mama, put my guns in the ground. I can't shoot them anymore. That cold black cloud is coming down. Feels like I'm knocking on heaven's door. So pretty, pretty fitting with the mood of the film. 
very relevant. It's been covered by Selig. It's been covered by Guns N' Roses, we mentioned. My favorite version is the Leningrad Cowboys version, which if you guys have not seen, I highly recommend looking it up on YouTube. The Leningrad Cowboys, for those who don't know, are a Finnish band with a Soviet-era motif. It's sort of tongue-in-cheek, kind of supposed to be like what stereotypical Russians during the Cold War saw as American and like trying to be rock and roll, right? But it's so much deeper than that. They look over the top. They have giant sprayed up pompadours that look ridiculously cartoonish and things like that. At the time they recorded this song, they did it with the Red Army Choir. And hearing the entire Red Army Choir singing, Mama, take these guns from me. I can't shoot them anymore is chilling and it's particularly chilling to hear them sing this now because we're coming up on the five-year anniversary of their deaths all 64 of them were killed when their army plane went down in the black sea in 2016 so it's Mm. super chilling to listen to the entire red army choir singing knocking on heaven's door anyway check that out that's my little pop culture nugget for this week but other versions it's appeared in a ton of films of course it was written for the film pat garrett and billy the kid the sam peckinpah western which is one we should probably do on the show but it's also been used in a bunch of other films including the film knocking on heaven's door the same name came out in the like 97 or something and 2002's treasure planet oh yes (laughs) which brings me to this week's Correcting the Record. In our second Cowboy Bebop episode, when we were discussing Heavy Metal Queen, I said one of my pet peeves is when people do EVAs without vac suits, unprotected in space. And I cited the movie Treasure Planet. Now, they may or may not do that in Treasure Planet. I don't know because I haven't seen Treasure Planet. I was actually thinking of the film Titan A.E., by Don Blue Studios, where that was my big pet peeve in Titan AE, not Treasure Planet, the Disney film. Apologies to Disney, unless they do it too, because it looks like they do on the poster, but I don't know. I won't judge a movie by its poster. I'll have to see it before I condemn it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, long story short, they they also use Knocking on Heaven's Door in that film. 2001 was a very eventful year. I believe Britney Spears was dating Justin Timberlake at the time. Some interesting hair trends were going on, too. Lots of highlighting and lots of makeup. iTunes was launched in January. The Federal Trade Commission approved the merger of AOL and Time Warner. The Netherlands allowed same-sex marriage. The producers starring Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, which was produced by Mel Brooks, made its debut on Broadway. Tony Blair became the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. This was in June of 2000. The first self-contained artificial heart was implanted into American citizen Robert Toole. In July, Beijing was nominated to host the 2008 Summer Olympics. The Justice Department, they were you know, in a huge court battle with Microsoft and decided that they were not going to break up the Microsoft Corporation at that time. And then on the 10th, Donald Rumsfeld made this big speech about overspending at the Pentagon, and the next day we were attacked. The September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center, which 
changed everybody's lives forever. I was pregnant at the time. <laughs> so <laughs> I was pregnant at the time. I was due to have my oldest the next day. And uh, I ended up having Casey uh, later that month. So my oldest was born on two th in 2001. And uh, wow, what a time to have a child and, or let alone be pregnant. That was just mind boggling. And I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, I was actually in a government building when I found out <laughs> about 9-11. <laughs> uh, I was at the WIC office because at the time um, I wasn't going to be able to work and take care of a baby. My ex-husband, um, he had hurt his back and um, had to have back surgery while I was pregnant and he wasn't able to take care of the baby. So I had to like I basically quit my broadcasting career and started to and became a mom um, because of that. And also I had to get some sort of assistance. So I was in the WIC office and that's when I found out about uh, the attacks. He had called me on my Nokia phone and told me uh, what was going on. And I was just in complete and total shock. I, I'm surprised I didn't end up going into labor that day, to be honest with you. But wow. I mean, really, 9/11. Is there anything else to talk about in 2001? Wow. I just, I just don't think there's anything else to talk about in 2001 past that point because that just changed everything. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting because I was doing production notes research and was looking up what other movies were coming up, and there actually was something that happened after September 11th, which was the first Harry Potter movie came out later yes. that year. And it was kind of interesting holding those two things in my head as a reflection of, I mean, you know, the September 11th attacks being a downer, but that Harry Potter came out that year as well. Yeah, Harry Potter came in like, here, we're going to comfort everyone. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> I remember that, that Harry Potter was like the first movie everybody went out to see again after, mm -hmm. you know, and try like trying to get back to normal. I had, was writing i had written and was directing my first ever feature film which had so many setbacks it had so many setbacks it took us three years to make it and i like i thought nothing could get any worse and then one morning i call around and i'm like is everybody ready we're going to be shooting you know at at this time you know i was making all the final calls around and one of the first people i talked to was my wardrobe person and she said to me what's going on with planes crashing into buildings? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And, and like, I turned on the TV just in time to see the second plane hit. And I was like, oh no, you know? And I was just in shock, you know? And, and like for weeks afterward, everything felt like it spiraled out of control, like mm -hmm. in the next several weeks, couple months. And then, you know, we're still feeling the effects of that today. And we're going to be talking today about terrorism. So I think that, uh, that that's definitely going to color this. We have to remember when we're talking about this film that it was actually completed prior to 9-11. And released. It released in Japan on the 1st. It didn't release internationally because of this. But the film was released... 10 days prior. Well, why don't you tell us more about the background of the film? Sure. That's a great transition, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it was until you interrupted it. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
me and my big mouth. So, uh, as I mentioned, the film was first released in Japan on September 1st. The international release ended up being delayed until 2003 because of the terrorist themes. And it was completely banned in Iran and Iraq because of the intersection between those terrorist themes and the Arabesque Middle Eastern flavor that Watanabe was going for. Part of it was Watanabe reflected on the fact that uh, there's a lot of New York inspired imagery in the Cowboy Bebop series. There's a lot of Tokyo and Shanghai and other major Asian cities represented in the animation, but really nothing from the Middle East. So Watanabe went to Morocco and spent some time there. Actually, one of the characters is inspired by his guide <laughs> who showed him around the city. But for whatever reason, Watanabe felt that it was important to create that alien sense of going to a new planet by showing another area of Earth represented in the architecture or the feel of this planet. So it shows up in the soundtrack. Uh, Yoko Kano, of course, came back to do the soundtrack for the film and added Arabic and English lyrics, but also instrumentation. There's also a lot more rock instruments in the soundtrack. So if you're watching it, you know, it's an interesting thing to pay attention to. We talked already about uh, the song Knock Knock Knockin' on Heaven's Door, but of course, because it is a Bob Dylan song title, in the US, the film was released as Cowboy Bebop the movie because they didn't want to cross paths with Bob Dylan about the title. Cowboy Bebop the movie grossed $1,045 in the US, just to give you a sense of where that lands. In terms of limited release titles, which Cowboy Bebop was, Big Fish was the largest grossing limited release title at about $67 million. And Cowboy Bebop in the 1 million area places it uh, shortly above Irreversible. <laughs> so if you're looking for a gauge of how, how popular Cowboy Bebop was, um, about a 67th as popular as Big Fish, uh, the Tim Burton film starring Ewan McGregor, and um, slightly more popular than Irreversible, which I do not recommend anybody see, actually. See Cowboy Bebop first. One thing that's notable about the film is they were able to put on a much more ambitious project. And even though, as we discussed, Watanabe approached each individual episode of the Cowboy Bebop series as its own miniature movie, they really got to stretch out and live in the characters more in this feature-length story. They were so much more ambitious with the animation as well, really going for that live-action feel and using more animation tricks to make those chase scenes with the spaceships, like the one over the water, which I'm sure we'll cover. Notable is... Watanabe brought in two directors to assist with particularly tricky sequences. One of the directors, Hiroyuki Okiura, handled the opening sequence, and Okiura went on to have a great career of his own, including being the lead animator in the 2016 film Your Name, which, again, if you haven't seen Your Name, it is one of the best, most gorgeous, cry-your-eyes-out <laughs> anime film that's come out in the last decade. 
highly recommend that film. The other guest director was brought in to animate the Western movie that's playing at the drive-in in the film. And it's kind of like a cross between High Noon and Shane, the way it's animated. But Tensei Okamura animated that particular sequence. And he also has an extensive list of credits. But the one that jumped out at me is that he was the key animator for My Neighbor Totoro, which was actually the first anime film that I had seen. When I saw the black and white drive-in film that Jet is watching with one of his old cop buddies, I thought it looked like Shane, but I later heard that they based it on High Noon. I'm guessing it must be a, a combination of the two. The interesting thing about High Noon is High Noon was remade into one of my all-time favorite sci-fi films that's also kind of cyberpunk and takes place on a moon of... Mars, I think, or might be a moon of Jupiter, Io, I think, Outland with Sean Connery. It's basically high noon in space. It has, you know, the inevitable showdown and all that, but Connery plays the marshal and the plot centers around a blood-borne pathogen that causes people to go crazy. So my mind went straight there with this film, and, and we'll talk about more connections here. I don't know if that was intentional or not, maybe just accidental, but interesting parallel sci-fi Western going on there. I'm really excited to dig into the bloodborne pathogen slash nanorobotics component of the film, but I think first, maybe we need a little pick-me-up. We need a little snack. So sometimes I come on here with elaborate recipes, but this is not a cooking show. This is not about elaborate recipes. It's just about pairings. What pairs best with the film or TV show? And in this case, it's ramen. It has to be ramen. Yes. And not just any ramen. It's the kind you get, the little cup of soup ramens, the ones that come in the styrofoam containers, and you just pour hot water in and stir that is what I recommend for this particular film. And it doesn't matter. A bunch of different brands make it, but I was feeling a little under the weather last night, so this was perfect for that. I was watching this film last night with my styro cup of ramen, and that's what I recommend you do. So there we go. Recommendation for this film, styro cup of ramen. <laughs> Excellent. This opens on Mars in... I believe they call it Alba City, which, as we mentioned, is like a combination of New York, a little bit of Tokyo, and also looks a little Istanbul. Not Constantinople? Well. <laughs> sorry, I had to. I'm so sorry. That's no one's business but the Turks. So, yeah, now that we've totally derailed everything. Can we get a shark meter for jumping the shark with this episode? Can we get a ding, ding, ding? (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. It opens with a convenience store robbery. Automatically, you know that this film, their attention to detail is incredible because they have... A lot of the shots mimic what you would get from a camera. So you get lens distortions, you get depth of field, you get stuff like that. And there's this long shot in the store, almost as if it's the same perspective as a security camera. But you can see there's three bad guys. One of them is so far in the deep background, but you can still see his mouth move. So that's how 
attentive to detail they were when it came to little things. And of course, you'd expect that because it's going to show on a giant screen, right? It's a movie. I noticed all sorts of things like that. The detail on highways where every car is moving and every truck, like even from its giant overhead shot or computer displays where it's right down to the, the smallest text is animated. This probably even tops Akira when it comes to the level of detail in the animation. I noticed it also with what an awesome setting for an opening scene, like the convenience store with all of the products that go flying. Like he grabs a donut and he's like, add it to my tab. And when one of the villains crashes into the glass cooler for the sodas and the sodas fall down on his head, we've seen convenience store robberies in live action films, but it suddenly struck me like, oh, this is such a such an exciting and vibrant place to have an opening scene just because there's so many props. There's so much stuff you can play with. And it's really made apparent because it has to be so carefully animated. They did an excellent job of really making the most of that setting in that opening sequence. And it reminded me a little bit of a Tarantino film, kind of Pulp Fiction-esque, that opening scene. This is a bounty that Spike is after. <laughs> he doesn't care about the civilians in the store. He doesn't care about any of that. He just cares about, supposedly, he just cares about bringing in the bounty. Meanwhile, Jed is back on the Bebop, and Faye is after her own bounty, like a Penny Annie bounty on this guy who has hijacked a tanker truck. Faye gets a glimpse of him, when he gets off of the tanker truck on a bridge and blows it up before jumping off the side of the bridge. And that sets up the main plot of this film. So one of the other early scenes is with the villain playing this Chinese solitaire game with marbles, which I think really sets the stage for one of the themes that shows up over the course of the film about strategy and laying out your moves in advance, which is something in the Cowboy Bebop episodes, it sort of feels like they get swept away as soon as they show up to try to claim their bounty. Shit happens to them and they're just rolling with the punches. And that one thing that makes this movie really different is that sense of people carefully planning their moves, you know, the villain and then the heroes with their counter moves. And this games show up quite a bit in this episode. My favorite part is Spike and Jet are playing Shogi, which is a Japanese variant of chess. And and the data dog, Ayn, jumps up and pushes the bishop, you know, and like makes this great move. It's like the they, they all like supposedly planning out these great moves, but really the dog is better at chess than they no, are. Like, no, you no, know? no, we're doing this. <laughs> This is the move we're making today. Yeah, well, I, I think it really, yeah, and it illustrates the difference between Vincent, the villain, carefully laying out the strategy. If you haven't played this marble game before, I highly recommend it. It requires the same level of anticipating moves that chess does, where you have to kind of visualize the whole board and how each piece is going to take each other in advance before you start playing. And it's very intricate and difficult but it's also a solitaire game. 
it's interesting thematically just in terms of what this villain is about. Some of it is that he's squaring off against these enemies, but some of it is that he's dealing with his own demons. He's dealing with his own sense of the meaninglessness of existence. Like, is this the dream or was the past the dream and now I've woken up? All those kinds of themes playing into this sense of he's playing solitaire. Everyone else is trying to play chess. They don't know who he is, but Edward is able to enhance the images and they have a military tattoo to go on. And that leads them to find out that he was in the Titan War. Eventually, Spike crosses paths with another martial artist, a former member of Vincent's team, Special Forces team, named Electra. She has been sent by the corporation whose truck was blown up to get this guy. But this corporation seems to have a lot of uh, military-grade hardware, ex-military members working for it. So as is typical in cyberpunk, the corporations are always up to something nefarious. (laughs) Yeah, the tortoise cleaning company. Well, that was their shell company. Yeah, that was their front. I mean, it was basically a, a terrorist organization biological terrorism right well it was Cheerios medical they were a pharmaceutical corporation but they were manufacturing illegal weaponry and the weaponry was illegal because it was banned by whatever the future Geneva Convention is because it was not actually chemical Mm -hmm. or biological it was nanotech right which was kind of a new thing and even in science fiction in the 90s Now we often refer to nanites or whatever, but at that time in this film, they call them nanomachines. Yeah, they took a lymphocyte. And it emulates that. Try to put nanotechnology in everybody. And then there was an antidote that was created. That was a fun plot twist when we discovered that, at least for me. As with all Cowboy Bebop, spoilers are completely out the window. We we just have to go Mm -hmm. into it. Basically, the army was originally testing this stuff on Titan, on their own troops. And they gave them the antidote so that they would be impervious to it. So the only survivor right now, as far as we know, was Vincent. The character's look and feel was based on Bob Dylan of the Knocking on Heaven's Door songwriting fame, among other things. (laughs) He was immunized, but... It still drove him mad. And knocking on Heaven's Door, the way that that applies to this is this entire thing takes place in the days leading up to and then the climax on Halloween. And Vincent tells them that Halloween is the one day that a soul can leave purgatory and get to heaven. And I guess he feels like he's in purgatory and somehow he thinks that this is going to open the door for him to get into heaven or something like that in his crazed philosophy. And we can talk more about that. So that's where we get the title, Knocking on Heaven's Door. At one point, Spike tries to infiltrate the pharmaceutical company and he goes in in a garbage truck and he's got a gray jumpsuit on. And to me, this looks exactly like the disguise Bruce Lee used in Enter the Dragon. Although I think he was telephone repair. 
I, I if I remember right, but it's the same suit. So once again, we have a callback to Bruce Lee. That fight scene, by the way, was so beautifully choreographed and animated with the broom and everything that he was using. Oh, oh so good. He's fighting Electra. Electra, the character model, was based on Gina Gershon. So if you can kind of picture that. Oh, I could see that now. Okay. The two of them have this battle in the hallway of the pharmaceutical company. Pretty cool martial arts fight there. And the soundtrack was awesome. The jazz score in the background really pushes the momentum forward in that fight scene, keeps it really classy and slick feeling. Not to mention the flirting that Spike does with Electra, trying to convince her to go on a date with him. <laughs> such a fun scene. He's not the only one that wants to go on a date with her. The lab tech guy keeps trying yes. <laughs> to, and she reluctantly agrees to get him to, to test a blood sample. <laughs> what happened with that? They kind of leave it up to the imagination whether or not she's actually raped in that scene but it seemed like she may have been. But then again, it kind of doesn't. It was hard. I don't know. He, I mean, of course, obviously he was inappropriate with her. Uh, he assaulted her. He sexually assaulted he, her, but I don't think there's, that he full on raped her. I, right. I think but he that, definitely like, sexually assaulted her. Yeah. Now, so part of that worked to her advantage because when he kissed her, she got the immunization. Mm -hmm. They make it pretty clear that her top was sliced open. Yeah, because he sliced that open on, on camera, but she was still able to cover up and, and get away from him. Well, he left. He he left her there. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I had the same question, Rosie. Like, I have a note here, like, super rapey scene with Faye and the knife. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I think it's that it was meant to be an escalation, that, like, he kisses her without her permission, like, definitely moving into sexual assault territory there. Mm -hmm. What happens with a knife? Like, if someone hadn't come in to interrupt, like, what would have happened? And then his invitation for her to come with him, mm -hmm. it sort of indicates she's getting more and more in danger. And she basically decides, like, I'd rather die. <laughs> so I, I'm glad that they didn't take it further than that. Me too. I don't really like it when movies do that. You know, I... I, I understand that maybe in some situations it might be necessary, but there are definitely ways to allude to that without showing it and without putting an actor through that. The scenes with them were edge of your seat for sure. And, act and mm -hmm. that was one of the moments among others where I had to remind myself that I was watching something that was animated and that these weren't real people. It was, right. <laughs> I, the film kept tricking me into feeling like I was there, like I could see and touch these folks there actually was you know a rumor at some point that there had been rotoscoping involved but they since said um that they're just really really well drawn it was definitely designed to make you feel uncomfortable like they that is for sure and i think they rather than just have the kiss and 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 toss that off as okay he made her immune through this kiss they had to give a motivation for why he would do that. And it's because like he wanted to rape her. Right. So I think that that's why that's there. Uh, are we going to talk about Ed 
because Edward always gets kind of overlooked here and Edward goes around trick-or-treating, which is one of the more (laughs) amusing parts of this film. I love the scene with the prostitute who says, like, you, you're going to ruin my reputation. <laughs> like, get out of here. Like, Yeah, when he finds out that Edward's a girl, right? Yeah. He's like, a little boy, you know? And then he's like, Edward is a girl. <laughs> Drag queen prostitute. It's like, get out of here. You're going to ruin yeah. my reputation. <laughs> Definitely one of the more amusing bits there. As a mom, though, I was looking at it like, ew. Because <laughs> it's a kid, you know? Like, so if it... So if Edward were actually a boy, would that make a difference? Like, ew, no. I just, I, I was glad that scene was over. Like, okay, let's move. Just like the rape scene. There's a yeah. lot of things in this, in Cowboy Bebop overall, not just this movie, that is supposed to be this sort of degenerate future society. And yeah. I think that, that, that you see that even in the humor bits, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, the, the cringeworthiness definitely shines through. <laughs> Do we want to talk at all about the arabesque part of this? Because it's kind of pretty big. All his shopping and what looks like a, the Grand Bazaar and stuff like that. Yeah, I had the same kind of feeling. The reasoning that Watanabe gave of, you know, wanting to show another planet and make it feel more alien by setting it in the Middle East, I think is is kind of seriously problematic <laughs> but i definitely felt the sense of this is a very different place from where we've been before but to me it just felt so real like it felt so much like morocco that i had trouble feeling like it wasn't l- like that we were still in the bebop world to be honest yeah so it's hard to go back to a time to sort of desensitize our stuff to to pre 9/11 so I, you know, now we're really concerned about how Muslims are depicted and things like this. This guy literally had a lighter that was a grenade, right? It was in the shape of a grenade. And like, like that was the, but nowadays that would never fly. No, never. I don't think it was meant with terrorist connection intentions. I think it was more like just the kind of rough noir world that it is. But nowadays we see it through the lens of like, Uh, this looks like Muslim stereotyping to me. Well, I think it's interesting. I took it more as a, it's problematic, even just as an Orientalist kind of problem. But I suppose what's ironic about that is that this is a Japanese TV show. So like to say that the Japanese are also being Orientalist towards Middle Easterners is, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm going too far in my critique there. Oh, they're all gaijin. (laughs) Like, it doesn't matter if you're not from Japan. No, I'm sorry to my our Japanese listeners. I think that there's a little bit of that. But I think they wanted a different culture to show that Mars was not just all American and Japanese, you know, and rather than do a Chinatown for the hundredth time or whatever, they they thought, you know, let's throw in something Middle Eastern. I think that's all that there is to it. They're like, we need an an another ethnic neighborhood to show. And let's 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 do this, you know? Maybe what I object to then is the sense that there's no, that like the futurist angle of what would a Middle Eastern society on Mars look like? That it looks just like like (laughs) present day Morocco, as opposed to 
like having kind of a future spin on it. Like it just felt like it was the same place. That Yeah, but that... New York looks just like New York of today. Like the New York stuff looks like today's New York. But with flying cars and, and you know, like it, I don't know. Well, the flying cars exist in, in the, um, in the Arabic so. part of town too. It's just that the majority of people don't have them. They're all, you know, walking through graffitied streets just like in new york they're what you know they're sitting on park benches or on stone steps i think that that's just cowboy bebop for you it's like this isn't star trek society has not evolved in a lot of ways society has devolved while still having like spaceships i guess one thing i would mention at this point is i feel like the film draws in another genre that we didn't see as much of in the previous films which is like spy thriller mm -hmm. um there was a lot of mission impossible james bondy type stuff in the film and them going to something like morocco in order to find out information also feels very james bond right in the middle of this film yeah i'd have to agree with that so this is very interesting because we're coming off of a run of james bond which may be why i my connection have you seen No Time to Die yet? Because there's so much I want to talk about right now. No, we are not going to talk not. about No Time to Die because no, oh. even even by the time this comes out, I don't know that, that a majority of people will have seen it. So It's so <laughs> relevant, though. It is so relevant. Oh, okay. All right. I will allow you one spoiler-free No Time to Die nugget. Go for it. No, it, I, I can't. Um, <laughs> you can't. No, because I... No, I'll I'll just leave it there. I'll try to find some other way to talk about this thing without saying that it's about no time. All right. I think that this would be a good time to bring up that we could discuss this in the GC8 group that we have on Facebook. I think this Ooh, would be nice a great plug. topic for us to discuss in All the right. group. For those who don't know, we have a Facebook group. It's the Geek Channel 8 discussion group. Uh, if you're interested in joining us there, we expand upon what we talk about on these podcasts there. Oh. Johanna, you you seem like you want to throw something in. So do, do you want that bone or do you want to save it. it for online? I, Just do it. I'll save it for online. For for now, can we talk about the nanorobotics? There's a key line early on where they say, what you are looking for is not a virus. And I was really grateful that it wasn't just a virus because we've been living with one for the last year and a half. So it was nice to see it go in, in a different kind of sci-fi direction. So I actually looked up where this nanorobotic stuff came from because knowing that this film was made in 2001, I was sort of curious, oh, well, where were nanorobotics back in 2001? Because they're much further along now in 2021. It turns out that it was originally just like a hypothetical thing back in the 50s. And around 1959, someone said, oh, well, you know, this hypothetical miniature robot could be used for medical purposes and that you would, quote unquote, swallow the surgeon. So this idea had actually been cooking around for about 40 years before. Fantastic Voyage is basically that. Yeah. Where they shrink people down and they go inside the body and try to operate. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so is the magic school bus. Just want to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> you are showing your age. I know, and I don't I care. I watched the magic school bus. This is, I did this too. My kids did too. Well, I watched it with them, but yeah. <laughs> so the other notable sci-fi example I found of this is the Borg have nanoprobes very similar to this. And I think we had discussed other Star Trek influences in previous shows. So thought I'd mention that there may be a Borg connection to the nanobots as well. That made the genre blend even more impactful, having this real sci-fi element. Okay, so the whole thing culminates at a Halloween parade where we have a very... I think it's been done before, the whole spreading of an airborne pathogen by giant balloons. I feel like <laughs> I've seen that a few times before. Batman, the original Batman. That's right. Batman had it. I think it's been done in a few other things, too. There are these giant jack-o'-lantern balloons filled with the nanites. And they come up with a plan to counter this because they get their hands on the antidote and they're going to crop dust the city. Of course, it's on Mars, so it's, everything's climate controlled. So Fabe breaks in there to tell them to make it rain. <laughs> Our barnstormers, this is like straight out of Independence Day. We get the nutty old guys like flying biplanes and crap. <laughs> I think this is just an excuse to show like every kind of plane they could like, you know, Japanese zeros and, you know, <laughs> yeah. like everything they could buzzing the city and crop dusting with the antidote. Can we talk about how the parade looks a lot like the Halloween version of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? Because it totally was reminiscent of that to me when I watched it. I was like, we're Snoopy. Yeah, it's that kind of a parade. Snoopy could have easily been in there. Yeah. Definitely. And then we get another time where we get like Spike's evil opposite. So we get Spike fighting Vincent on a replica Eiffel Tower kind of thing, which is supposedly like Spike sees it and realizes that it is the door to heaven. Like it is the connection to heaven. I might not be up on my Eiffel Tower lore enough to know how, why he makes that connection. Does anyone else have any thoughts on that? No, I haven't, but it makes sense. You know, when he saw that, he was like, oh, okay, this is where he was talking about he was going to be. I found it a strange connection to make, but uh, maybe there was something that was lost in translation there. Hold on, I'm finding something. Stairway to Heaven, Stairway to Heaven, Eiffel Tower, and Side. So the Eiffel Tower is often called the Stairway to Heaven. Stairs of the Eiffel Tower is what a lot of people call the Stairway to Heaven. So there you go. That enlightens me a little bit. Yeah. Thank you, Google. <laughs> <laughs> I plug other good podcasts, and the Rewatchables is one that we've been compared to, and they have a segment that they call, I think, Half-Assed Internet Research. And I think we... I th <laughs> That's all of our research, unfortunately. That's my whole life. <laughs> I think we need, like, an equivalent term well, equivalent term for our podcast for when we like, we just Google something and we're like, okay, you know, according to, according to Wikipedia, you know. <laughs> we call it low key research. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, I want to say that I loved this movie. I put it on the list with Akira 
as one of the top 10 greatest anime sci-fi films. I'd also put it on the top 10 list of nanotech films, along with Paranoia 1.0, low-budget film with Harry Dean Stanton. If anyone gets a chance to see that, that's worth checking out. But this, it was just outstanding. I think that you definitely get way more out of it if you're familiar with Cowboy Bebop. But even if you didn't know who these people were and you watched this, I think it would be a good film. It's got legs to stand on its own. Can we pause for a second and reflect on how hard it is to animate a fight scene in the rain on the Eiffel Tower with sunset and the glowing butterflies like all happening at the same time? It was just amazing. Amazing. And I liked it's like a crane shot and they're pulling out and you see the way that the scaffolding moves, the mise-en-scene is exactly like it would appear if a camera was pulling back through it, which a lot of things would just like make it static and be the same as the camera pulls back, but actually it's going to move as the camera moves. I thought that was amazing. So was this weird love confession that Vincent made about. Well, Vincent, Vincent and Electra had a relationship. They were in love, but he forgot all that. He had amnesia caused by the nano machines in his blood she remembered it he did not so that was that's what that was all about and so as always with cowboy bebop there is no happily ever after for relationships no. there never is in cowboy bebop and th- that's the case here it's another version of the same kind of relationship dynamic between julia and spike mm-hmm Mm-hmm. We probably should have mentioned that earlier. It's a recurring Cowboy Bebop theme. Yeah. One of the great things about Cowboy Bebop is that it is relentless when it comes to that. It's like, we'll give you... Life is fun in small doses. You get a little bit of humor with the dog. You get a little humor with, with Edward. Edward. Edward mm-hmm. is so innocent that she doesn't even know how bad the world is yet. But by the time you become Jet, you realize that everything is corrupt. He even says that in this when they're at the drive-in. The guy was like, his, his ex-partner cop is like, you know, after that, everything went bad. You know, it was like corrupt from top to bottom. And he's like, it was always that way. Yeah, he's like, come <laughs> on, Bob, it was always bad. But, yeah, you know? That, you know, you're just deluding yourself if you think that it was ever on the level, you know? One more thing I wanted to mention, and I did actually make a note of this, is that I don't know if the kiss was what really gave Faye the antidote because he did have her drink his blood. Like, she woke up after being knocked out or whatever, and he told her that. I do remember him saying, I, I gave you my blood. So, yeah. yeah. I thought that was part of the kiss. Yeah. I think it's, oh, okay. it's weird. I guess maybe the kiss is giving you his blood. I, it's weird that they used that terminology. Mm-hmm. Instead of like, I spit in your mouth, you know, <laughs> like yes. now you have the nanites. I think they, they use blood to refer yeah. to that, you know. Well, he had blood all over his face while he was kissing her. It was, it was not sexy. <laughs> definitely not sexy but it was but it wasn't i don't know <laughs> <laughs> well Faye's sexy but yeah he, him not too much every episode of cowboy bebop or almost every episode ends with see you space cowboy that implies that you're gonna see him down the trail and this is a one-shot movie so it has something different 
it says, are you living in the real world? And that question is the central question for Vincent. He doesn't know, is this real or is the nanite part real? Is the, are the butterflies, which is the, this butterfly, this effect that they see, you know, when, when the nanites finally reach your brain, you see illuminated orange butterflies. And he doesn't know what's real. This is another one of the common, common themes in cyberpunk films. In fact, it's the whole basis of The Matrix. Do you know whether this is the real world or that's the real world? You know, are you blue pill? Or are you red pill? I think that was a very interesting trope to throw in as the final thought of this episode. I think that about wraps us up for Cowboy Bebop the movie, aka Cowboy Bebop knocking on heaven's door. I want to remind everyone to like, subscribe, follow, whatever it's called on the particular platform you follow us on or could follow us on. Throw out a five-star review. We could really use that. Probably five-star reviews and just telling somebody else about the show are the best things you can do to help get this podcast out there. Yep. Tell a friend. If you want to talk to us directly, you can email us at GC8 podcast, letter G, letter C, number eight podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. Signing off.